let's talk about this one and mm-hmm. let's try and get through without absolutely wanting to go this mm. very day. I don't Egypt, like our chances. No, yeah. me mm. neither. Mm-hmm. Egypt, land of the pharaohs, mm-hmm. Ben. Mm. There's so much to see and do in this wonderful country. Mm-hmm. And it's a country that links northeast Africa and the Middle East. Yes. Egypt, it has a very long history that dates back to ancient times and it's a perfect place for history buffs mm. as well as everything else. Mm. Neither of us have been, no. have we? And what do you think of when you think of oh. what like kind of swims around in your mind? I, I, it just it seems very browned pyramid colour to me and I'm sure it's much more colour, colourful than that. The dream is to get on a felucca and travel down the Nile, sail yes. down the Nile. Yep. I can imagine that will be life-changing. But I just think that country as a whole, the pyramids, the Sphinx, yeah, going down to the Aswan Dam, mm-hmm. and the pharaohs. Yeah, incredible, right? Anything to do with the pharaohs. I just think the Valley of the Kings, mm. you hear it, you see it. Mm-hmm. I think before we die, Ben, what about you? Yeah, very similar. It's hard to quite comprehend the age of this oh, civilization, don't yes, you think? Yes, like, absolutely. Just four to 5,000 years ago, this incredibly sophisticated um, society and civilization was thriving in that part of the world. It's pretty astonishing. You do continue to wonder how they how they built those structures. It's, we don't know. It's kind of one of those questions, isn't, isn't it? it? Mm. Um, the extraordinariness of the engineering and the fact that I, what, what do they say that you can't put a razor blade between the stones of the pyramids? Well, yeah, that might be in Machu Picchu in Peru, but that I'm sure. Both, that, so but again, another you know places. questions around how those things are built. See, is you wonder. Pretty astonishing. What did they know then that we don't know now? Without yeah. cranes and and all sorts of yeah, it's hard to get your head computer around, assistance, etc. Yeah. Now, if we talk about the pyramids being four thousand mm. years old. What about the Valley of the Kings? What do you know about that without having gone there? Because that sounds so amazing. It does sound um, astonishing and incredibly monumental and uh, I think based uh, located in Luxor, uh, burial site for, the, I guess, the, for the royalty and the pharaohs. So that would be pretty astonishing to see how, I guess, grand and lavish all of that is. So do you amazing. think when you go to those places that are enormous because they have an enormous of pharaoh carvings, do you think they make you feel particularly small or you just are overawed by it all and you don't even think about your own size on the... I'm not sure how I would react. I think there'd be a lot going swimming around in my head. There'd be a sense of that somehow we are connected to it because we're, you know, we're humans. Um, But the thing that I guess the thing that really puzzles me is how something like that written language the yes. hieroglyphics just at some point just yes. fades out of memory. Like no one knows how to translate. We had to relearn how to translate that stuff. Like that's that really kind of makes my brain hurt a bit. Just I think the scale of the things that they built would be what I would actually get me there. I mean, I I want to see how big those pyramids are and how enormous those statues and temples are and how ornate those sarcophaguses are and just to try and understand to, to feel how it. sophisticated these people yeah, were. Yeah. To feel it and to get it into your system. Mm. What about Abu Simbel, that massive rock temples in Upper Egypt? Yeah, so Abu, Abu Simbel, um, from memory, is an entire temple complex that was relocated when they um, constructed the uh, Aswan Dam, I think. So relocating that piece by piece to another location is pretty extraordinary as well as the initial construction in the first place. And I know you've talked about Alexandria. Yes. Uh, there was a couple of wonderful books of fiction written around there. Right. 
I think we forget Egypt has great coastline, great beaches. It has resorts down on the Red yep. Sea. It has a Mediterranean coast. And Alexandria, my understanding is, you know, it, it faces Europe across the Med. Yep. So has a much more kind of Mediterranean, um, maybe sense of its, uh, European sense of itself. Now, you, you know, a couple of little interesting facts about Alexandria mm-hmm. that you probably know, but I'm just going to mention was um, founded by Alexander the Great. Mm-hmm. That's the name. Mm-hmm. Home of Cleopatra, mm-hmm. that very clever, pretty lady. Yes. Um, sits by the Mediterranean, as you just said. Yeah. Um, also home to the Great Library of Alexandria and the colossal Pharaoh's Lighthouse. Yeah, so amazing wonders of the ancient okay, world, just, right? Yes. And um, love the idea of the library, the, the ancient library, and I would yep. also love to go and see the, the new Bibliotheca of Alexandria, which is an enormous million-volume modern contemporary museum in Alexandria, which would be well worth visiting. Are we just going to Drown keep ourselves on going? In yeah, with yeah. all these amazing things that are going to make us want yeah. to go there. Just what about the Nile itself, Ben? Beautiful, beautiful. Can, <sighs> what do you think of when you think of uh, Egyptian food? Like are you familiar with that at all? Would you? No. I, you know what? I can imagine arriving in Egypt, just being spellbound from the moment of just getting out of cab, plane, whatever, mm-hmm. um, looking around the cities and, and getting a sense of what the Egyptian culture was immediately, I would think that wherever I went to eat, I'd find something new mm. and something that was astoundingly delicious. Mm. And washing down with tea or coffee or something. Are they big coffee drinkers? I don't think they are. Well, that's what I think of. I immediately yeah. think of really, really strong coffee, but um, we might have to check in with an expert on I that. I think we should do that. Mm. Um, what about you and food? Oh, on a stick, Ben. What's I wonder if they have anything on a stick. stick. (laughs) Again, we'll have to find out. Yes, (laughs) I we don't we haven't heard of anything on a stick in Egypt. There would be. I'm I'm sure there'd be. You know, a lovely succulent uh, chicken grilled over an open. Fire on a stick. Why not? Yes. You know, we can sit and muse all day about Mm. how wonderful Egypt is. I think it's probably time to go and to get some guests who know what they're talking about a bit more than us. Absolutely. But you know what? It's an interesting position to be in, like some of our listeners who possibly haven't been to Mm. Egypt. I mean, uh, there's there's a lovely thing about travel. Allegedly, there's five steps to travel. You dream, then you plan to go, then you actually book, and then you experience, and then you want to share. Yeah, right. I think we're right now in the dream stage. Mm which is a really good place to be because our, we, our imagination can go wild. Yeah. I expect the, when we went to Egypt, the actuals and the, it would be even greater than our imagination. Yeah, I'm keen to find out about some of those actuals, how oh. to get there, how to get around, what to eat, So what let's to talk to some people, yeah. Ben. Great, let's do And it. we'll go together. Let's go. Now, yeah. we're joined today yes. by Sky Peacham from Travel Associates and Sky, God bless her, <laughs> is going to tell us about travelling to Egypt, which we have been so excited to be mm. talking about, Sky. So welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be talking about Egypt with you. Oh, well, you've travelled to Egypt yourself and helped dozens of people to plan their own trips to the country. Tell us about yourself and your experiences in Egypt. Well, I was really lucky enough to spend two weeks in Egypt. I was able to travel throughout the country. Uh, I travelled by boat. I travelled by bus. I uh, travelled by private car. So I've experienced it from, I guess, a number of different points of view. But for me as a kid, Egypt was always one of those things that 
one of those places that was just magical and I had to see. So I was so lucky to be able to tick that off my bucket list. Hey, and once you had ticked those sort of bucket list items off, what else was there um, that really kind of pushed your buttons in, in Egypt? What else really surprised you about the place or was a bit unexpected? I was really surprised about Egypt in general. I thought I was mm. going just to see the pyramids, um, <laughs> you know, as most people sort of associate with Egypt, but there's so much there. You know, it's got amazing beaches. It's a country that's rich in culture and history. So just getting to meet the locals and sit and have a drink with them, and things like that. you know, they're things that you wouldn't necessarily think of when you think of Egypt, but it was the, the highlights of my trip. Mm. And beyond the pyramids, what else did you, what other sort of, you know, big ticket items did you Can did I just you stop you at the pyramids yeah. for a moment because <laughs> I haven't I haven't actually seen no, them. No, actually, a bit person. of context, Guy. Neither yeah. Julia nor I have been to Egypt, so no. you're really helping us paint a picture. So the pyramids is, when you first see them, Sky, is that just life-changing? It, it's breathtaking. I don't think anyone really comprehends just how massive they are. Mm. You see the photos, you know, where people are trying to do that little, um, you know, they're trying to pinch it between their fingers and they look like they bought it. Even then, you know, you don't really have a a concept of just how huge they are until you're standing at the side of them and you're contemplating, you know, climbing a few rows. So it's absolutely breathtaking and mesmerising and it's it's really eye-opening from a cultural point of view as well. And I think from a historical point of view to think that they were made so many years ago without the modern resources that we have today. You do wonder, don't you, about who built them? You do. Yeah. You do, you do, you do. But I think it's it's important that um, idea about how big those things are is what I want to go and see with my own eyes because there are so many things like, you know, the Grand Canyon, you see it and you go, wow, it's actually so much more than the photos. Yeah. Um, and speaking yeah. of the photos of the pyramids, I mean, you see some aerial shots and you see them that they're right on the kind of doorstep of the city. Is that is that are they like right on the outskirts of Cairo? Yeah, pretty much. Um, they're really easy to get to. They're not a huge distance. So it it's really it's difficult to comprehend that mm. there's an ancient civilization right outside a massive city, you know, with say 10 million people. It's, <laughs> it's really, yeah, it's one of those things you've got to see to believe. People visiting Egypt should, should absolutely go to the pyramids, shouldn't they, Sky? Yes, definitely. It, it, it would be a waste to go to Egypt and <laughs> not see them. And, um, did you also get down to some of the other, see some of the other massive kind of monuments like around Abu Simbel or Luxor? Where else did you go? Yeah, I went to Abu Simbel uh, to see the Temple of Ramses. That was pretty impressive. Uh, went to Giza to see the Great Sphinx as well. Again, one of those things until you've stood in front of it, you don't really comprehend just how huge it is. Hmm. Uh, so, yeah, places like that that, again, Egypt are famous for, but you don't really have an appreciation of until you're actually physically standing in front of them. I'm, I'm going to ask you about Cairo, Sky. Um, you mentioned it's a you know an enormous city. There's something like 10 million people. What's it like to be right in the middle of that? It feels a little bit like disorganised chaos, to be honest. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it, it's got all of the the modern cons that you'd find in most cities. It's got traffic lights and cars and networks and things mm-hmm. like that, but there's not a huge infrastructure in place to make sure that everyone follows that. So, you know, yeah, you've got 10 million people and it's just chaotic. But 
it works. It works for them. It's just different to what we're used to experiencing. But it's an easy city to get around. Mm. Um, you know, you can be staying at a five-star hotel and right next to it is a food market. So mm. it's a really mixed approach and, and wealth there as well. And you said you were tra- you were there for two weeks. Were you um, mm-hmm. traveling independently or with a small group tour or a bit of both? How did that How did that play out? Uh, I did a little bit of both. I did independent touring to start with and then I joined a tour. Um, the tour was great. It gave me, it was a small group, so I think there was about 20 of us, mm-hmm. um, just a different insight into the city to what I saw on my own. Mm. But both experiences really complemented each other. So when you talk about being on your own, after you've visited the must-see aspects of Egypt, if people want to go off the beaten track, uh, if people want to go off the beaten track sky, where should they be going? I would recommend looking at places that are not overly touristy. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you go to Aswan, you could uh, sail a felucca, which is like a traditional wooden boat. That's oh, dreamy. Really Beautiful. Cool. Dreamy for me, yeah. that one, mm-hmm. giving that a yeah, go. Yeah, it's nice. Yeah. It's peaceful. You're away from millions of people and the tourists. Um you could go to Philae Island. You can get a motorboat to go there. So that's another great experience and you can see the stone quarries, of the unfinished obelisks and things like that. So is that an island um, on the Nile? Is that is that is it on the river or an island? Where is it? it just, yeah, it's sort of off the river a little bit. Okay. Not technically an island per se. Got you. Okay. Um, the markets in Luxor are really, really worth checking out. Lots of uh, locals. So it's not a traditional touristy market. It's more a locals market. That's Lovely. really good. Mm. Yeah, an insight into how the people live each day. Um, and if you wanted something that is really quiet and tranquil, then Lake Nasa would be the place to go. Mm-hmm. There's lots of wild animals in that area, but it's also sort of empty landscapes that are away from the hustle and bustle of the city. So you get to see a completely different side of Egypt. What about getting around Sky when you're on your own like you were? What is the best way to travel? I found Egypt quite easy to navigate. Um, they do have a bus, train, taxi sort of system over there. Taxis are really easy to, to use. You just sort of negotiate your fare, I guess, and they'll take you to where you want to go and they're all nice and clean and the drivers are very respectful. Mm-hmm. But buses and trains are... Probably not up to Australian standards, uh, but you can still get around on them. Some of them have air conditioning, some of them don't, mm-hmm. so that's something to consider when you're travelling. And I definitely recommend if you're going by train to select the first-class option <laughs> just so you've got a little bit more comfort. Mm. It's certainly not premium first-class, but um, have a nice clean seat. It's, it's definitely what you're looking for on a long train trip. And so you travelled by train? I did. I didn't even train. Where did yeah. you Where did you travel between Cairo and Aswan? I want to say mm-hmm. overnight sleeper train. Oh um, wow! Very unique experience. Very unique. Uh, was the scenery extraordinary before the dark came? Uh, I only boarded in the evening, so I didn't get to see a lot. Um, but in the morning, as we were pulling in, yes, the scenery is very, very impressive. But it. It's just a different way of travelling and you get to meet other people and you get to meet some of the locals because a lot of the residents travel by sleeper train, so it wasn't just tourists on there. So that was a good experience as well. So those small group tours that you were talking about as well, Sky, um, 
Are they good? Do they do they just get you to the places you don't have to worry about it? They're taking you where you wouldn't otherwise know about, and you're safe or you're feeling safe. The small group tours are good if you're not comfortable touring on your own. Yeah. Um, it's a good way to see the main attractions. You tend not to get too far out of the main touristy places. So you, you have to go to the pyramids and Abu Simbel and things like that. So it covers all of the bucket list items. Um, and you've got a private guide. So you get a lot of the history and a lot of the knowledge that they've got that you probably wouldn't get seeing it on your own and just going up and taking a photo and, you know, reading the little plaque that's there. So to have a local guide that is crazy about Egypt as much as you are, it, it's invaluable. Yeah, absolutely. I totally agree with that. The level of kind of information and immersiveness you get through having a really terrific guide on a small group tour is fantastic. And then when you're talking about safety, some people worry about it, some don't. But uh, in Egypt, are there any rules of etiquette that that you should know about as a traveller? There's no hard and fast rules in Egypt. They are quite a conservative country, so that's something you need to consider. So when you're going to see the temples and mosques, be respectful of their culture. Um, so if you go to a mosque, you will be asked to take your shoes off and walk around in your socks or they provide little plastic booties to walk around in. Mm-hmm. And just general conservative conservative attire for women, so covering your shoulders and things like that. And I think, I think um, anyone who's perhaps travelled to Cambodia or Vietnam or Thailand is probably p- pretty familiar with that. Oh, the church at the Leaning Tower of Peter will give you one, yeah. Yeah, Mm. Yeah. anyone that visited any cultural sites would be familiar with it, yeah. Now, Sky, we always ask our guests, um, do they have a moment that they can recall when they were travelling and it doesn't have to be anything big or significant, it's just something that made you stop and, and think, oh, my Lord, this is just extraordinary. What would it have been for you in Egypt? I think the highlight for me for my trip was walking through the tombs in the Valley of the Kings. Um, as, a, as as I said earlier, for someone who was mad on Egypt as a child and wanted nothing more than to learn about all the pharaohs and the kings and things like that, the Valley of the Kings was the pinnacle of my trip. And just to be able to walk through those tombs and see the discoveries that have been made in recent years was just mind-blowing. It was absolutely phenomenal. It actually looks like that, doesn't it, that that you would not be able to leave that place the same person that mm. you actually entered. Sky, um, yeah. you go. No, I was just going to say it's just it's breathtaking. Mm. It's a real eye-opening experience. So in, in the land of everything requiring travel, where would you put Egypt, Sky? Uh, I would definitely put Egypt in my top five. Wow. Top five, there you go. Mm. Yeah. Another day we'll ask you what your other four are. (laughs) Yes. Thank you enormously. Um, It's been wonderful to speak to you. Always inspiring and it's, it's, um, gosh, Ben, there we go again. I think I'm due for a new passport soon, Julia. There's not enough pages left where we want to go. (laughs) No, that's exactly right. (laughs) Sky, thank you very much. Where can people find you uh, to find out more about Egypt? I'm located at Travel Associates on, in Currambine, so you can just head, head to the Travel Associates website, which is travelassociates.com, and you can find me on there. Great. We'll pop all that in the show notes, and um, I'm sure our, our listeners will uh, look forward to, to tracking you down. Thanks so much, Sky. Really, really appreciate your time and um, expertise, and we're insanely jealous of that trip. <laughs>
Yes, we are indeed. <laughs> Thank you very much, it's Sky. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, now our next guest is going to teach us how to eat like an Egyptian. <laughs> Dana Eldaif is the award-winning author of two Egyptian cookbooks. She's also appeared as a contestant on a show called The Taste Middle East, which is a MasterChef-style cooking show that was filmed in Egypt. Dana, a big welcome to you to the show because we're looking forward to hearing all about your love affair with Egyptian food and how it began. Thank you. Thanks for having me, Julia and, and Ben. Um, it's my pleasure. I, I firstly would like to say that I've got an Egyptian heritage, so that's a big plus. Yeah. Both my parents, <laughs> both my parents are Egyptian. My mum was from Cairo, and my dad is from Minia, which is south of Cairo. But uh, my dad moved here fifty years ago, so I was born and raised in Melbourne. And um, at home, we just ate what my dad grew in the garden and what, what my mum cooked which was um, Egyptian food. So I've grown up eating it. And have you been to Egypt uh, many times? I've been, I haven't actually been many times. I went once when I was younger with my with my dad. He took uh, all the, the, the kids, uh, myself and my siblings, and we went, um, I was 13 at the time, so I was fairly young. And then I didn't really go again until I was invited there to cook. So it's been a big change and it was quite an exciting time to go back and visit. I don't think Australians know much about Egyptian food at all, typically. Can you tell us a bit about its characteristics and perhaps maybe some of the history behind it, where it's come from, where it's going? The kind of food they have is stuff we've actually seen uh, in Australia. We've got similarities with other countries from the Mediterranean and the Middle East. Mm -hmm. So Flat bread, flat bread and rice are staples. Mm-hmm. We have uh, dips that you would know, oh, like tzatziki, which is a Greek dip, but the Egyptians have one too, and that's just called um, yogurt salad, so salatid zabadi. Mm-hmm. We have kofta, um, which you will know from Lebanese shops and falafel, um, as well as stuffed veggies, stews and those sorts of things. If you're travelling in Egypt... What should you be eating over there to get an all-round experience of of food in that wonderful country? Yeah, well, my funny you ask. My uh, second cookbook is called Egyptian Flavors, and it's aimed at travellers. Oh wow! It's basically a mini size book. It's a travel size book, and it has fifty traditional Egyptian dishes to look out for and experience. That's great. Uh, while you travel through Egypt and. And so that you don't have any of the other simpler meals. They're sort of things that you'll come across either in restaurants or on the streets. Uh, it explains what's in them. You can see that and then you can try it and know what you're eating. Gosh, there should be a little book like that for every should country. There should yeah. be, yes. You should sp- spread your wings a little, Dinah, and do it for other countries <laughs> nearby. <laughs> yeah, I think I'm getting more and more requests to write more things. So um, we'll, we'll see how this one takes. But I think it's a great idea. And at the moment, um, promoting that through travel agents, and, and they're really keen because people who travel to Egypt uh, might know about history, but they don't necessarily know about the cuisine. And this is just a one-stop shop, basically covers all of the 
essentials. So if you only could have two meals in Egypt if you were going there, one a sweet perhaps and, and one a savoury, of course, what would you suggest? Well, if you, I would probably say go and find some molokhia, that's um, the soup. Mm-hmm. And if you didn't find that one, the alternative uh, would be something called full madamus. It's also uh, one of Egypt's national dishes. It's made from broad beans and it's sort of mushed, if you will. Um, they're slow cooked. Yeah. The beans are, are cooked over up to six hours. So they're really, really slowly cooked. Um, and it's seasoned with oil and garlic and lemon and, and salt and cumin and it tastes really lovely. For a dessert, I would say uh, you've all probably seen or heard of baklava, mm-hmm. um, which is all through the Middle East. There's another similar one called basbusa, which is made out of semolina to semolina syrup cake. Oh, yum. And uh, if I was in Egypt and I'd seen this crunchy pastry, it sort of looks like noodles, but it's um similar to baklava, but it, it looks like it. So it has the nuts and everything in it, but it's a crunchy pastry. I would try that. That's actually called kunafa. That sounds pretty delicious too. In terms of drinking, what are the Egyptians having alongside their, their meals? I'm imagining maybe teas and coffee and things like that. What what else are they are they having yeah. with their meals? Yes, often um there's there's plenty of tea houses and coffee shops in Egypt. Traditional coffee is heavy and similar to Turkish coffee, if you've come across that mm-hmm. before. Mm-hmm. Uh, Turkish-style coffee is basically the, uh, where the, gro- the, the beans, the coffee beans, are, are ground very, very finely. So they're, they're much finer than what we're used to in our, in our coffees here. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's sort of brewed with, you know, just 60 or 70 mils of water and served in those little tiny Turkish coffee cups. So... It's it's a very strong drink, yeah. Um, and you know, there's a knack to making that too. And actually, it reminds me of a uh, an experience I had growing up because my mum didn't teach me to make anything, but we did have a family friend visit, and I was only just early teens, and and he wanted coffee, and so my mum went to get, it and he goes, no, no, Dinah can make it. And I had no idea how to make Ooh, putting you coffee. And he goes, you must know. <laughs> yeah, you have to know how to make me coffee. So I actually learned to make that, but it was all part of, you know, you could you bring it to the boil, but you can't actually boil it. And it just has to, you know, you've got to keep the, the, the head on it. And it's all very skilled. Mm-hmm. It's a, a bit of a craft. But the other main drink uh, in Egypt is tea. Lots of black tea, but they also have hibiscus tea. Uh-huh. And hibiscus tea is um, really interesting because it's it's served cold in summer and it's served hot in winter. Uh, it's an all-year kind of drink. Yeah. Uh, and it's something that has quite a lot of health benefits. So it's drunk medicinally as well. Right. And any yeah. um, any alcohol on tables? No, well, you may find it uh, in homes and you'll certainly find it in hotels if you're staying at hotels, uh, but having alcohol in Egypt in public places is banned. Sure. It's it's illegal. Yeah. So you won't really, you won't go down to a pub or anything like that because that's, you know, they, they don't exist. Okay. Hey, um, one of the things we often ask is for a, a, 
a recipe or two, something really simple people can do at home to give a, a taste of, um, well, in your case, Egypt. Do you have a really simple recipe that Julia and I could, you know, yeah, cobble together up. tonight? Yeah. Yes. Thank you, Ben. Good, good idea. Yeah. I'd love to cook for you, oh. given the opportunity. Uh, but I've got a really we easy. That, <laughs> that would be better. <laughs> Keep going, it's always Diana. better. Food is always better when it's uh, made before you, isn't it? Yeah. Um, this one is uh, like an omelette. It's called egga. Um, and basically it's just a, a knob of butter in the pan. You fry up half a small onion and you add actually some plain flour. You add two teaspoons of plain flour and, and mix it together. And you add some flat leaf parsley. I use just a small bunch. So, so I'm just following you. You start with a small knob of butter. You cut up some onions, yes. some plain yes. flour, parsley. Yes. parsley. And parsley. And you stir it. You, you cook it until the onion softens. And then you take it out of the pan and you add the the that onion and parsley mix to two eggs, which you've got. Uh, you've just whisked, so you're making an omelette. You whisk that in a bowl and you add your onion and parsley. Does that make sense? Yes. Then you, yep, and salt and pepper. And then basically you put it back in the pan and make your omelette. So it's it's very easy. It's only very few ingredients, but it's really tasty and it's quite healthy. Uh, you don't sort of get the overpowered parsley or, or onion. Yeah. And then usually I just serve that with some feta cheese and some flatbread. Uh, goes on the table with some olives and and uh, pickles yum. if you like them and done and um yeah Bob's your uncle <laughs> <laughs> dinner organised mm-hmm. so what would Bob's your uncle be an Egyptian diner <laughs> <laughs> oh I don't know the phrase I hear the most is is salam edik which means we we thank your hands for making it oh, oh that's very that's yeah, lovely that is nice isn't it yeah say it again. Yeah. Salam. Yes. Edik. Edik is your hand. So we, we thank your hand for for making this for us. I'm going to remember that. We thank mm. your hand when, <laughs> when we're eating with people. That's mm. absolutely yeah, lovely. Absolutely. Just we, we and apart from the simple recipe, and thank you for that, we talk often about the moments, one single standout moment that people might have in what they love, what they're doing, and you, of course, it's it's cooking Egyptian food. Apart from that gentleman teaching you how to c- make coffee by virtue of necessity, mm-hmm. is there something else that's very special that's, that, that has been in your Egyptian food cooking career? Um, well, I've, I've really loved the interest people have shown me about Egyptian food. I mean, really, to be honest, growing up in Melbourne, I, I didn't like being Egyptian. I didn't want to be different. Yeah. Um, and I found it really hard to to accept my culture or to embrace it in any way. And so as I've gotten older, I've just found people have been far more interested. They've um, shown a, a lot of, uh, I don't know, kindness, I suppose, in just who I am and what I do and and what I offer. So I've I've been really grateful for that. I even up north in Brisbane, I would say I've started doing uh, Pinot cruises and and cooking live cooking demonstrations on board. And I found up in Brisbane 
amazing because they were the least likely to have tried food from the Middle East, Hmm. but they were so accepting of it and they were all really interested and would give it a come down and, and try the food off the stage. And, you know, it was really engaging and I was so so it warmed my heart. I felt like it was a lovely thing. Oh, very nice. That there's more of that going on. Thank you so much. It's been a real Thank pleasure. Thank you, Ben. Hey, um, before we let you go, can you tell our listeners where they can where they can find you online and outside the Taste Bud Traveller environment? Online, just on dinaraldaif.com. Mm-hmm. That's D-Y-N-A-E-L-D-A-I-E-F.com. And I'm on Facebook and Instagram. My books can be found in the bookstores and online through Amazon. Terrific. We'll put all those, um, all those, um, all that information in the show notes. Thank you so cool. much. Thank again. you so much. Thank a, you, Julia. Real pleasure. Great pleasure. And I'm going to do that omelette. If I get the opportunity, I'd love to cook it uh, live for you. That'd be awesome. Well, Thank you. To we have to do that. Yeah. Thanks, Dinah. Thank you both. Ben. Yes, Julia. Our next guest has travelled to over 35 countries and lived in eight of them. Gosh. Matt Wan is a strategy consultant who hails from the US and he is currently living and working in Sydney. Now, Matt spent three months, lucky gentleman, living in Cairo Mm. and uh, he is going to tell us about his travels and experience with Egyptian beverages. Matt, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Yeah, welcome, Matt. Hey, can you tell us a little bit about your time in Egypt and how you ended up uh, living there for three months and and how much of the country perhaps that you um, you explored? Yeah, so I was in Egypt when I was still attending the University of Chicago. Mm-hmm. I was really lucky and had the opportunity to participate in a combination summer internship and cultural exchange in Cairo. Wow. And when I was there, I definitely made the most of my time to explore. So all up along the Nile. Um, from Abu Simbel all the way down south to Luxor to Alexandria all the way to the north. Um, I was in the east, did some kite surfing on the Red Sea near Ergata, um, climbed Mount Sinai from the sunrise and visited St. Catherine's Monastery on the Sinai Peninsula. Oh, wow. And then also checked out some areas out west. So there's some really cool desert oases. There's one called Siwa that's near the border of Libya. And then there's some a little bit to the southwest of Cairo called Bahrain. That's also very nice. Oh, you did travel. Now, yeah. is it easy, yeah. <laughs> easy or difficult to say what was your favorite place in Egypt? Really difficult, actually. <laughs> so um, let me give you two. So one is called the White Desert. So this is an area, it's a national park now, I believe, near Bahreya Oasis. It's a really surreal area because... So typically when you think of a desert, you get kind of the rolling golden sand dunes, right? That's the image that comes to mind. But the white desert, it's a place where there's a lot of white chalk formations. So the color is very different. And then the rock formations themselves, they've been shaped by wind erosion over time. So you get these really fantastical um, shapes. So some will look like a chicken or some will look (laughs) like mushrooms. And that's just absolutely crazy. And I, and I remember really specifically that one night we were camping out in the desert and, you know, we're camping under what is certainly the clearest night sky with more stars than I've ever seen before and since. And I just remember there was all of a sudden there was like a glow in the horizon. And I was really confused by, by that because, you know, we're in the middle of absolute nowhere. So there shouldn't be any light pollution. Mm. 
But, and then as I kept on staring at the glow and just trying to figure out what it was, the moon just started to rise. Oh, and it was, it was absolutely stunning. And as the moon was rising, there was just this eerie glow all around us because, you know, the, the rocks being white just sort of like reflected the moonlight. And it was just this really eerie emanation of light this, all around. This planet continues to deliver us a lot of miracles like that, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah, totally. I mean, you feel like you're not on Earth in that place, yeah. which is really cool. We are lucky to and have then, it. Yeah, and then I would say the second one I'll, I'll give you guys, it's quite different, So, and I don't know if it still exists, but when I lived <laughs> in Cairo, I lived in a neighborhood called Zamalek, and it was a little hole-in-the-wall restaurant, and the name was Alex Top. Don't know why it was called that, but that's what it was called. And I would typically go there for like a cheap sort of, you know, cheap and quick meal. And they would serve traditional Egyptian koshiri, which is like a mixture of like macaroni and like chickpeas and some tomato sauce. Hmm. And then they would also have a milk pudding called melodea. And it was always the same people who greeted me. And it was just so warm and hospitable every time I was there. And I didn't speak Arabic really. I didn't really speak English, but <laughs> it was kind of nice just to have like that sort of comfort food, um, quote unquote. Um, but yeah, I would definitely encourage any visitor to explore kind of the, the hole in the wall places, even though it might look a little bit less than sanitary, but it's a great experience. Yeah. Yeah. You're really onto something. I mean, we, we talked to a lot of people. Yeah. We even had Guillaume Brahimi and you know, a well-known uh, French-Australian chef talking about doing exactly the same thing in Paris and just finding yes. somewhere to sit and take a drink yeah. and, and something to eat and just watch the world go by. They're beautiful experiences. The people's yeah. food. Yeah. Um, we're just going to move on from food to tea in Egypt because it's it's so incredibly popular. Can you yeah. tell us about the types of tea that you encountered and, and how you think and see and observe that it fits into the day-to-day life of the Egyptian people? Yeah, definitely. Tea is certainly everywhere, and and it's there is a more omnipresent than coffee here in Australia. Um, but yeah, so people were drinking tea all the time, everywhere, and certainly something that people use to break up the day. Um, and interestingly, it's always hot tea. Like the weather is very hot, as you might expect in Egypt, and certainly when I was there during the summer. But the tea is always very hot and very. Um, yeah, and always very sweet too. They were usually heavily sweetened and often flavored with mint leaves, so kind of like a mint tea. Um, but I also did have some lemongrass tea at one point, and I think it was in Bahareya when I had that. Um, one of my other favorites is called karkade, which is a hibiscus tea. So it's an infusion made with hibiscus flower petals. And the first time I had it, I was in Khan al-Khalili, which is the big bazaar in Cairo. It's an incredibly stimulating place in terms of the smells, the sounds, all the people and all the sights. And so it can be a little bit overwhelming. So it was absolutely an oasis when I went to the little cafe mm. and just had a glass of the, the karakade because it was just so refreshing and it was nice to kind of be able to just sit back and get away from the hustle and bustle mm-hmm. of the bazaar for a few minutes. Catch your breath. Yeah. yeah. You mentioned coffee. Is there much coffee? I imagine in, in my mind's eye there's heaps of coffee. Am I wrong? I actually don't remember because tea was 
so commonplace. Uh-huh. There may have been some like Turkish style coffee, yeah, right. but tea was definitely the most popular. So then when we say, let's go and have a coffee in Egypt, they say, let's go and have a tea. Yeah, exactly. Sort of. Have so, some shea. So how did you go with your let's go and have a tea? I bet you met some really interesting people. Yeah, I think I would say one of the more interesting experiences was when I was in Aswan. So I had I was visiting Aswan and I had hired a boat to go on the Nile <laughs> and explore a bit near the city. Um, and so we were out of the city and kind of just like what appears to be a pretty rural area. The skipper of the boat, it was just me and the skipper, but the skipper parked the boat along the shore near what really seemed to be nothing. Like it was just, there was nothing there. Mm. And he didn't really speak English that much. And I still did not speak very much Arabic, but between, you know, a barely intelligible medley of sign language, Arabic and a few English words, mm. he wanted me out of the boat. I was like, okay, <laughs> not part of the plan, but sure. <laughs> and he, he told me to follow him and I didn't know what's happening, right? Like, I had no idea where we were going, and I didn't see anything in the area. Scary, scary, scary. Yes, exactly. After a little while, we got to what looked like a little village, and there were some houses. And he had me go into a house, and at this point, I'm like, well, I don't really know what's happening, but... It seems like yeah. this could be you not go, ideal. I didn't get to say goodbye to mom. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, and this is, you know, this is before the smartphone days and having cellular coverage everywhere. So mm-hmm. I'm definitely a little bit nervous. And then inside the house, I was told to sit. And surprisingly, what happens is that a woman who later I found out to be his wife, bring some mint tea out along with some snacks. And so I was both just absolutely bewildered and also a little bit relieved. (laughs) Um, It was a pleasant situation and not something more nefarious. I'm insanely jealous of that experience. Yeah, Yeah. Yeah. immediately jealous. Yeah, Yeah. so you became became a guest. Yeah, yeah. Oh, how stunning. Yeah, exactly. And that culture of hospitality is very strong in that part of the world, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, definitely. There was another occasion actually when I was in Alexandria. So this was during Ramadan. So most people would have been fasting and not eating or drinking water even all day. And so I was walking along the the sea, along the Corniche, and right at Sagnan, so that's when everyone is breaking fast during Iftar, a group of strangers just, you know, asked me to join them to break fast with them. And aside from food, there was of course some tea as well. And so it was just yeah, you know, the hospitality was really touching and nice. it was a beautiful moment and sunset. Nice. Hey, what about cold drinks? You've, you've mentioned the hot drinks. So they're, you know, when they do need to cool down, what are the Egyptians yes. drinking? Yeah, so Egyptian lemonade, that's one of my favorites. It's made with lime and mint and oh, yeah. it's surprisingly frothy, zesty and really refreshing. So that's really tasty. Mm-hmm. And then there's um, sugarcane juice, so freshly squeezed sugarcane juice. And I think we don't need to explain why that's tasty. <laughs> Just sugar and water, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, another one is Fanta apple. So I think Fanta orange <laughs> is more typical, but Fanta apple, let me tell you, is a savior. So <laughs> after, <laughs> truly, like after being out in the sun, like a hot day, mm. you can usually get Fanta apple, maybe not ice cold, but 
at least cool. Yes. And it's just, yeah, like between the sugar and the, the bubbles and the apple flavor, for whatever reason, it just worked really well. Were there any other quirky Egyptian flavored <laughs> Fantas? Yeah. So there's one actually called Fanta Tamarind. So that's like the... That's like the fruit sort of thing that kind of looks like a bean. It's yeah. a bit sour. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So they do fancy tamarind during Ramadan oh. because there's, um, yeah, there's actually a traditional tamarind drink that's uh, typical for Ramadan. And so then, of course, Fanta has capitalized on of that. Of course. It's not going to be something that yeah. immediately comes to mind, drinking Fanta. It's and it's And it's fairly Egyptian to do so. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. No, I... Um, which also begs the question, Matt, Egypt is a Muslim country. Um, Mm -hmm. What about alcohol? Yes, no? It does exist. So there's actually some local beers. I wouldn't say it's incredibly popular and it's not always easy to find, but there's definitely places where you can buy some beer. Hmm. Um, The two two local beers that I came across most most frequently were Stella and Saqqara. I think they might both be owned by Heineken at this point, or at least like Heineken influence. Mm-hmm. So they're, you know, kind of what you would expect to be a light, easy to drink in a hot place. What, was Egypt not one of the original places in the world to develop the, a beer recipe? Yeah, I, I think between like wine and wine and beer, certainly one of the very first places. Oh. To, to put it together, yes. Yeah. Uh, um, I'm just st- still a bit smitten by the Fanta. It surprised <laughs> me, surprised me. Um, oh, I, I do want to mention, so in terms of beer, I remember, interestingly, there was a bar in Luxor. I think the name was something like King's Head Pub or something like that. But what was really interesting was they had a very distinctive painting in the pub. And it was a portrait of essentially King Henry VIII, but then the the head of King Henry VIII was replaced by a pharaoh. So I think it was oh, okay. Ramses II. Yeah, so just nice. a bit of a quirky place nice. and Nicely done. one place for sure you can get beer. <laughs> <laughs> um, Matt, we, we just ask people when they've been travelling or when they've lived somewhere, a specific moment for you just just doesn't, mm-hmm. didn't, you know, uh, other than your beautiful night under the stars with the white glow, Anything else just stands out? It doesn't need to be special, but just mattered to you. Yeah, I think I would say the whole experience for me was completely eye-opening because I hadn't been to you know Muslim majority part of the world before, and this was at a time when you know kind of the prejudices and xenophobia they're still high now and potentially increasing, but. I think just being there and being able to interact with people and see that everyone is just people (laughs) and just like you and me makes such a big difference in terms of opening my eyes and changing my perspectives on the world. Hey, thanks, Matt, so much for for talking to us and the Taste Bud Traveller listeners. Um, Can you let us know where we can perhaps find out a little bit more about you and or where you're traveling to next? Yeah, of course. So I usually try to keep a record of my travels on Instagram. So my Instagram handle is M-A-T-T-W-A-N, at Matt One. Uh, that's probably the best place. I post, you know, the usual photos and stories. So that's probably the best place. Great and spot. then, yeah. Matt, been a great pleasure. 
I'm going to completely think differently about Fanta and hibiscus. (laughs) Every time I see one of those beautiful things, I'm going to think cup of tea. I think we're off to Egypt, Julie. Beautiful. I think we are. Matt, thank you very much. Been a great pleasure to talk to you. Thanks, Matt. Thank you. Ben, you know what? This is just such a wonderful pastime, sitting here and talking about it. Not quite as good as going, but however... It's up there. uh, It is, isn't it? Mm. Enough to fill the travel soul, I Mm -hmm. have to say. So... Um, I totally enjoy it. Thank you for all your information no too. I love nothing more than a good bit of travel natter. Me too. Mm. Yes. Mm. And you're good at it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. And listeners, don't forget to rate, review and subscribe and uh, tell your friends and family all about Taste by Traveller. And we love hearing from you. So be sure to leave comments wherever you get your podcasts and uh, we look forward to taking you on another journey soon. See you later, Ben. Ciao. And listeners, bye. Bye.